Good morning, beloved. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 2, if you want to make your copy of Scripture ready. Galatians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I want to just share kind of an observation and some thoughts that I've had recently. Um, At the gym that I torture myself at, um, there's a, I mean, it's a gym. They're, they're there to make money. Um, it's not like this nonprofit. We're like, we just want a healthier America. Uh, they're, they're trying to make money. And so the way that a gym makes money is to have more members paying the monthly dues. And I go to the cheapest gym in town, in case you're wondering. But um, So there, there are two levels, though, of membership. That you can get the cheapest membership um, that costs something like $10, or you can pay double You can pay double for a monthly membership and you get some perks. And you know what the number one perk is that most people take advantage of? And the main thing that they try to sell that double the cost membership with is? You can bring a friend. Uh, You can bring a buddy. Like you can have a guest with you. If you have the the gym membership that costs twice as much, bring your buddy with you. You're like, why wouldn't they just buy their own membership? I don't know. Like, what is that? But it works. It works so much that that is their main strategy for getting you to buy the more expensive membership. And then you see people bring their buddies. And then their buddies may decide, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to get that double the cost membership too and all this stuff. And you got to ask, like, why is that? Why is it that they would say, like, get the more expensive one because you can bring someone with you and hype that up? Why is that effective? Because there are things that we don't want to do alone, especially hard things, like working out requires some discipline. It's, it's not fun at first. And so if you're going to do something hard, they know that there's power to tap into and that power is in community. So if you bring your friend along, then you're more inclined to enjoy this hard experience and then you'll make it into a habit and all this stuff. And so we know the power and influence of community, and not just with gym memberships, but in so many things in life. Um, the B team asked you this morning, like, what is something that you never want to do alone? Like, most of us have a list of things. Like, there's so many things that I don't want to do alone. Um, but we know that there are things that, that, even if it's a good thing, like, we just, we want to be together. We are innately social creatures. We want to be in community. But community can be really good or really bad. And that depends largely on what it is based on and what it demands of us. Like we've all experienced good community and bad community at different levels. It can be both. And yet we all know like how crucial it can be. So we are in Galatians chapter two. And so quick recap to, to bring us up to speed of what we have covered so far as we go into the second chapter here. Um, in chapter one, we saw Paul identify himself and his audience. And in identifying himself and even his audience, what we saw is gospel identity. That Paul sees who he is in light of the good news, this gospel of grace. That is what defines him. And that is what he said. That's got to be what defines all of us as followers of Jesus. If you're finding your identity outside of the gospel, then it's a misplaced identity. It's going to fail you. It's going to crush you. So find your identity. Make sense of who you are in light of who God is and the way that he relates to us in love and grace, his salvation. And so gospel identity, and then he launches into his first remarks, which kind of change the typical pattern of Pauline letters. And he's like, oh, you foolish Galatians. Like, why well, am amazed that you would so easily and so quickly turn away from him who called you in grace? Like, why would you turn to another gospel? There's not even another gospel. What are you doing? Like he's, he's like flabbergasted. Why would you do this? And what he shows in that is gospel centrality, that the gospel has got to stay central. We must defend it. We must ensure that it is not tainted. It is not distorted. Hold it central in all things. And then last week, Paul started this, this portion where he's, there's some accuser is present and likely more than one. 
Uh, we saw that from the very beginning opening line where he like feels the need to say that he's an apostle of a special sort. And so there's someone making accusations that Paul has a distorted gospel and they're trying to tack things onto the gospel and we're gonna see that outplay um, throughout this book. But some people are accusing him and so what Paul does after his initial greeting is like, guys, hold the gospel central as he then says like, okay, there are accusations against me that my gospel is not reliable that I don't have the true gospel? Well, let's, let's see about that. And then he systematically addresses those accusations, refutes them each. They're like, hey, I didn't make this up and I didn't get a distorted one from anyone else. It actually came from Jesus himself. And so we saw gospel reliability last week. And so this week, I want us to step into gospel community. As we continue Paul's autobiographical section of this letter, and we're gonna see the beauty of gospel community, what that calls us to. So we're gonna be Galatians chapter two, on the heels of Paul demonstrating the reliability of his gospel, using his own story to disprove any of those accusations against him, saying that he's preaching a false gospel, he now continues this narrative to show gospel community, what the true gospel is gonna bring about. If it is reliable, this is what it results in. So chapter two, verse one, says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and I had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So if you were with us last fall, we actually went through Paul's letter to Titus. And so this is the same guy, Titus, comes along with Paul. And so Paul is telling them here, look, this is, this is what happened. I went up by revelation. In some way, God told Paul, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. Let's clear things up. And so Paul goes in obedience to Jerusalem and he takes along Titus, who is not a Jew. Titus is not a Jew. He has not been circumcised. And circumcised, um, circumcision, if you don't know what that is, I'd, I'd encourage you to talk to someone that you trust, um, but don't look it up because that could be terrifying. Um, but it is a physical, surgical procedure that identifies particularly men as being part of the Jewish ethnic group. Like there's a covenant sign that is instituted um, with Abram and then all of his descendants that on the eighth day, a boy born into the Jewish family, the Hebrew people, on the eighth day was to be circumcised. And this was to be a sign of the covenant, that you're cutting away something that could lead to greater filth. And so it was this symbol that was to represent something more, it was actually to represent the circumcision of the heart, that the, the filth would be cut away and so um, please don't overtake that to, to mean that it's, if some, someone is uncircumcised or that it's disgusting or anything like that, this is just where historically it finds its roots. So um, Titus is here with them. He is not a Jew by birth or by circumcision. He's not a Jew. He is a Gentile. He's Greek. And so Paul has brought him here on purpose though. And so he comes here and Paul wants to know that he had not run and was not running in vain. And so that begs the question, is Paul questioning his own gospel? Like, you just told us the story that you're like, no, I got this straight from Jesus. You better believe I know it's true. It is not corrupt. He systematically shows how it is not a false gospel. It is the reliable gospel. But now all of a sudden he's like, I hope I'm not running in vain. <laughs> so what is his worry here? It cannot be that he thinks that he has a wrong gospel. His worry is that if he comes to Jerusalem and the apostles in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, has a false gospel, if their gospel has been distorted from what Jesus himself had delivered to Paul himself, 
then imagine the impact that that would have on all of the churches that Paul had planted across the known world. As Paul is going, planting churches in every city he comes to, and he's teaching them this true gospel that he got directly from Jesus, now Paul's worried like, okay, we got people creeping in here trying to give a false gospel to distort this. What if I go back to Jerusalem and the, the place where this all started and they actually have the gospel distorted now? Oh, that's gonna undo so much of what I've done. And so he goes back to ensure, hey, are we still preaching the same gospel here? And so he comes back, this whole circumcision thing comes up, Titus is there, he's not circumcised, like, whoa, wait a second, should he be circumcised? So now we have kind of this preview of like, this is what the people in Galatia who are accusing Paul of being a false apostle and having a false gospel are actually trying to tack onto the gospel. Essentially, what's happening, we're gonna see this play out a lot, they're Judaizers, so to speak. This is what they're called in other letters. They're people who are from the circumcision party, Paul will reference it as, that come in and they're saying, look, if you wanna be part of the family of God as a Christian, like yes, Jesus died, he is our salvation, that is the gospel, it's good news, but, but also part of this is, now you need to become a Jew like us. And so we're gonna tack on to the gospel this extra thing that you must do. And so namely, it's a sign of the covenant. You have to now engage in this sign of the covenant to actually be a person of the covenant. So if you want the gospel to save you, this good news of grace that God loves us and he is our salvation, well, you actually also need to do this. You need to become an ethnic Jew by being circumcised. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You don't add to the gospel. Even these signs of the covenant, baptism is our sign of the covenant. It's like, you don't add that to the requirements of salvation. You do that out of obedience and faith of your salvation. So no, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't need to become an ethnic Jew to be part of the family of God. The gospel says, no, that's, that's done away with. The law is not what is binding on us anymore. And so he brings Titus along, and this is intentional. Um, John Stott said it like this. He said, it was not in order to stir up strife that he brought Titus with him to Jerusalem, but in order to establish the truth of the gospel. This truth is that Jews and Gentiles are accepted by God on the same terms, namely through faith in Jesus Christ and must therefore be accepted by the church without any discrimination between them. So the point Paul is making here is that Titus is not a Jew, and he comes, and even the apostles in Jerusalem do not say, well, he needs to become a Jew by becoming circumcised. The point is, he was not circumcised. And thus, the gospel stands as, no, it's entirely by grace through faith. No works, including taking on this sign of the covenant. No, you do not have to add. That is actually to distort the gospel. And so, yes, you will live in obedience to the commands of God in response to your salvation, but they are not your salvation. So Paul continues on, verse four, he says, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. That's heavy. <laughs> but we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. So why are these people coming in saying like, no, 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 like, yeah, the gospel, that's good. Like, salvation by grace through faith. Jesus died for your sins to save you so that you could enter now into the kingdom of God, live under his rule and reign, live for his glory, be united, delight in him, all of the freedom and joy that he has brought us now. But you, you also, you have to do this if you really want that to be true for you. To be a Christian, 
You now need to become a Jew, or you need to keep this aspect of the law, or this aspect of the law, or this one, or this one. You can tack all these things on. And Paul's saying, these people came in, they crept in. They didn't come in like guns blazing, flags in the air, like, look, we're here to distort your gospel. No, they crept in. They snuck into this in a subversive way and just trying to subtly twist this a little. But you know, like, let's read back here with Abram. Becomes Abraham. You gotta be circumcised. This is, this, is, this is a sign of the covenant through all generations. We're still in all generations. Like, you gotta do this. And you can take so many things and start to twist them. And suddenly the gospel becomes so fuzzy. Like, wait, what, what is my salvation? Do I, do I have to do this? Like, and then you feel the weight of that? Like, Pastor Kevin, you just, you just referenced like, some actual text in the Old Testament that says all generations. Now I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Like, we're still in that. Do you feel that? Like this attack on our freedom. And Paul's saying, well, we didn't, we didn't submit for even a moment. We didn't back down. We didn't even back down so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. What is the freedom that we have in Christ? It's that his perfection and his obedience became ours, not your own. Your, your submission to God's law, your obedience, your compliance to God's law is never going to earn you salvation. It is not going to keep you in salvation. It will be present as an outpouring of this faith that he has called us holy. Now we live as sons and daughters of God, struggling with our sin on this side of redemption because he's the one who will perfect us on that day. But don't submit to that. Your salvation is entirely by grace through faith. Jesus has set us free and for freedom he set us free. So don't submit again. Don't fall into this. Don't see that it was only his perfection, only his obedience that will ever attain our salvation. Uh, the way that Paul wrote this in his letter to Colossae, Colossians 1.22, he says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So we are freed from the rules and regulations of the law. And not only are we free from worrying about the outward conformity to what, is, what it is to be an ethnic Jew, like circumcision, all these things of the law, but also from the endless rules and expectations that we all try to add on top of it. I mean, how many of us grew up in churches where there's a specific way you'd better dress? And there's a specific set of language, or words that you're supposed to use, a way you carry yourself, and you better not drink alcohol, or you better not smoke, or whatever it is, and like all these things, are like, you search the scripture, and you're like, I, I don't find that. But we love to add to the law. We love to say like, this is what it is to be the people of God, and so now you better conform to this. Whereas what the gospel does is say, no, this is what it is to be the people of God, we're free. And out of gratitude for that freedom, yeah, we're gonna pursue holiness. And so we're gonna submit to God's word, but that is not our salvation. And so remember like when we went through Titus and we get to that really like shaky passage where you're like, he's telling the slaves to submit to their masters. Is he endorsing slavery? He said, no, no, he's not. But if the slave can realize, if we can realize that we're truly free in Christ, then even if it looks like oppression, then the world oppressing us would say, man, I want your freedom. You're actually free. And I want that. This is the gospel. We are free in Christ. We obey the law out of gratitude for our salvation, but it is not our salvation. 
We are freed emotionally from the shame, the despair of not measuring up to the law. If you want to submit to the law, Paul's going to argue this later, then you got to submit to the whole law, okay? You can't pick and choose. And so who can stand uncondemned before the whole law? Only Christ. Your freedom is only found in Christ. And so the shame, the guilt, the despair that we feel from not measuring up to the law, Jesus is saying, no, I, I took that. It was nailed to a cross. So you don't have to live in that. But if we're going to let people come in and say, well, you also need to do this, then it's saying, like, just bring the shame back. Bring all of it back. <laughs> I won't take it back on myself. And Jesus is saying, no, it was nailed to a cross. Leave it. It's done. In God's eyes, it's as far as the east is from the west. It's sunk to the depths of the ocean floor that we know more about the surface of the moon than the depths of the ocean floor on our own planet. And God says, that's where it's at. <laughs> totally taken from my sight. You're free. So live in that freedom. And then he goes on, verse six. It says, now from those recognized as important, and then parentheses, what they once were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. It's like, okay, these people want to accuse me of having a different gospel from the big guys, the well-known guys, the original apostles back in Jerusalem, Peter, James, John, those guys. Well, let me tell you what, I talked to them. We, we had a little get-together, we had a powwow, and guess what? They said, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the gospel we're preaching. They didn't add anything to me. In fact, they said like, hey, like, this is beautiful. The grace that's been entrusted in empowering us to take this to the Jews has been given and empowering you to go to the Gentiles. This is awesome. Well, praise God. Isn't this great? This is the same gospel. Yeah, man, high fives all around. This is great. Uh, that parenthetical note that he included in there, it's like, whoa, what is that? Like, <laughs> Paul, is that a little bit of animosity? Like a little bit of like, kind of like, kind of posture here? Like peacock kind of thing? Like what was that? Like what they are makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. No, he's not meaning that in a negative way. Like this, this is our tendency. And this is what these guys are doing. They're trying to undercut me with their accusations and say that I'm less than them. And this is what you all need to know. And this is what we need to know, church, is that in God's family, there are roles there are actual roles that I am to shepherd your soul and I will stand in front of God and give an account for how I lead you. And that's heavy. And so Hebrew says that you should make it a joy for me to shepherd your soul. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but here's the thing. <laughs> that does not mean that while that is a call to honor me, to respect me, and your other pastors, leaders at any level, in and out of the church, we're called to honor and respect them, but it does not mean that we elevate them, or me, any of us, to the position of God, that I am a broken sinner, and I can guarantee you, I'm going to fail you. I so do not want to, but I'm not Jesus, and I'm going to fail you, I'm going to let you down. You will be disappointed in me in this life. And so what I'd ask, what Paul's saying here is, look at the way that God sees us. God doesn't show favoritism. Yeah. Kevin, Paul, whatever it is, they have a role. And so respect that. Lean into that. Live out your role. But see that we are all sinners in need of the same Savior. So show grace to each other when you fail. Every one of us, from the bottom to the top, so to speak. 
which Jesus was like, flip that paradigm upside down. You just serve everyone if you want to be a leader. But see that it's all grace. It's all grace. So don't listen to the accusation of the, like, the puffed upness of, of these people attacking. Like, that's crazy. Look at even the way that I'll treat these apostles that they're saying that they're in alignment with. Like, no. We just joyfully get to serve our God in the role that he's assigned us. And all of us are saying, the gospel, we're only here by grace through faith. We live in that freedom. So don't submit to anything outside of that. Don't elevate leaders above what God has made them. Respect them, honor them, but give them grace when they fail. They will, we will, because we're human just like you. But every one of us has a call to say, what is the true gospel? Hold that and then relate to each other in light of that gospel. So uh, he goes on, verse nine, says, when James, Cephas, who is Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Which, if you want to geek out, is likely the reason he's in Jerusalem as well. Um, if not this time, the time prior. Like, this is what Paul does. He runs around as a missionary, but also a fundraiser. And like, hey, we gotta help the church that's suffering back in Jerusalem. So here he is. Hey, they see the grace in us. We see the grace in them. They extended the right hand of fellowship. It's like, that's an interesting term or phrase. The right hand of fellowship, what is that? You can get into all kinds of different sociological ideas behind this, like the right hand is the dominant hand for the majority of humans, and so the left hand in the ancient world when they did not have sinks and soap always available, the left hand was reserved for things like cleaning yourself after you relieve yourself and um, touching things that were not necessarily clean, and the right hand was the one that was like, okay, like we do business here. So to extend the right hand of fellowship was the hand of honor. And um, you can actually look into all kinds of stuff that we don't know the real origins of this, but think about shaking hands. We still do that today. I know in the last year and a half with COVID, it's like, no, don't shake hands. Like just fist bump or air five, whatever it is, like all these different things. But like, there's something about shaking hands. That this, this like mutual respect. And even, even with people who don't respect each other, like you know the game, like you get to somebody and they shake your hand, you're like, oh, what is wrong with you? Like, what are you trying to prove here? Like squeezing so hard, like, why is that offensive and weird? Because the whole idea of shaking hands is to show like a mutual respect. So a lot of people look back in history and say like there was something like even in the medieval time that you'd shake hands because going back much further than that, like if most people are dominantly right-handed, you know, guys, we're ridiculous, fight club stuff. Like which hand do you watch when you think somebody is possibly angry with you? The right hand. You want to see where that thing's at at all times. Because if they're going to reach for a weapon or draw back to hit you, probably going to be the right hand. And so we're just like conditioned, like watch the right hand. So if you take the right hand out and it's empty, there's no weapon here. Then I'm coming with peace. And then you come with the hand that would attack me with peace. It's open. There's no weapon there. And then you shake, which just the history nerd in me was like, um, they actually would shake Knights would shake their hands to make sure there was no hidden weapon to fall out. Shake it, like, anything there? Okay, we're cool. <laughs> well, like, that's all this weird stuff, but what is it that, that these apostles now, face to face, are like, well, shake hands. Like, the grace given to me and the grace given to you, we're on the same team. Um, I was a high school teacher for a few years, and, like, you know, teenagers are always fighting. 
And so we'd have fights break out in my room, not necessarily fist fights, but like, you know, they, they're going at each other and we'd talk through it. And I'd always, like, even when I was coaching, I'd make players on my team, like any time that I was with a kid who got into an argument, they had to shake hands. Like, it's going to the next level if you don't shake hands. You're gonna stand in front of me and you're gonna shake hands. You're gonna look each other in the eye and shake each other's hand. And they hated it. Do you see kids shaking each other's hands today? No. Fist bump, all the other things. And so, why? Why is it such a big deal to shake hands? You guys never shake hands because still there's something in that that's like, if I shake his hand, like that means that I'm actually having to let go of some of this stuff and say that we're okay. There's something profound about this. And so when they extend the right hand of fellowship, fellowship to come together, like to be on the same ship, say like we're in the same boat here, together. This is what the gospel does. It pulls us together. It draws us together and creates a beautiful community that is centered on grace. They, hey, I don't deserve to be here. You deserve to be here. No, I don't either. But look, this is beautiful. Like Jesus has made us free and we come together and we celebrate this. And then there are people who try to sneak in here, so weasel their little hand and they're like, yeah, me too. And you're like, no, 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 no. Like you're actually trying to take us out of this. This is the gospel. We all have to hold on to this gospel and let it hold us together. That if each one of us will hold to the gospel, we're all holding the gospel and it holds us all together. This is the call of this. This is gospel community. And look, I, I just so want to stress and impress on you the importance of being in gospel, gospel community. It is not just coming here for an hour on a Sunday. Like, think about this. How much is forming you constantly all the time, we are taking in media, whether it's stuff we see printed around us on our phones, all over the place, we're constantly being formed by something. And so then you think like, oh, well, an hour on a Sunday, great Christian formation. What is that going to do? Like, I'm under no delusion that I am that great of a communicator. Like, most of what I say, you will not remember 10 minutes from now. But to think that we can come together, like, the most important calling on our life to live for the glory of God. And we come together because on Sundays we need to be encouraged and equipped to live our life. I just, yeah, that hour, yeah. Like I hope that you long for this, that you crave this hour. I do. We need this. But if it ends here, what is that gonna do for the rest of the week when there's so much else shaping you? And that's why we put before you opportunities like have a disciplined practicing partner. So we say like, even just half an hour a week, we're gonna call each other or meet up at a coffee shop and talk about the discipline of the month. We're gonna read scripture together. We're gonna pray together. We're gonna live life together. You're gonna be someone that I call when I'm struggling with sin. You're gonna be someone that I call when I'm hurt and I don't know what to do. We have those things. And then home groups to be in authentic community that like the early church in Acts 2, they met together daily in the temple and in their homes. That that is the rhythm. That it cannot just be corporate gatherings, but it's life. Go be in each other's homes and be the church every day. God knows we need it because everything else is constantly forming us. Let the gospel be the thing in this community that shapes us more than anything. So the bottom line, the gospel forms a beautiful community. It does. And as we conclude, I just want to acknowledge that um, for, for the last particular year and a half, so many people have pushed back on gospel community in anger 
because they don't like this policy or this position or this or that, how the church responds to this or how people in the church can be so different than me. There's all these different things and I'm not saying this is just true of us. This is true of every church that I know of. And so the tendency has been to withdraw, which is essentially saying like, there is not a value to gospel community in my life. Like, my position on this is more important than being around the people of God who can require me to just constantly be addressed, confronted by, encouraged by, and just enraptured in the love and delight of God, his gospel. It's just, yeah, I'll isolate. When like we started, we know there are things, life being at the top of the list, that we are not meant to do alone. Uh, Frederick Beekner, he said this. He said, the trouble with steeling yourself against the harshness of reality is that the same steel that secures your life against being destroyed secures your life also against being opened up and transformed but the holy power that life comes itself from. You can survive on your own. You can grow strong on your own. You can even prevail on your own. But you cannot become human on your own. Surely, that is why in Jesus' sad joke, the rich man has as hard a time getting into paradise as the camel through the needle's eye. Because with his credit card in his back pocket, the rich man is so effective at getting for himself everything he needs that he does not see that what he needs more than anything else in the world can only be had as a gift. He does not see that the one thing a clenched fist cannot do is accept. Or Paul said this, this has just been so heavy on my heart this week. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, beloved, or as our translation puts it, dear brothers and sisters, family, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling, excelling, not maintaining, not just getting by, but excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you know that, beloved? This is written to Corinth. I'm going over my time. (laughs) Do you know, have you read 1 Corinthians? If you're familiar with this book at all, that verse should rock your world. Listen. Therefore, beloved, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Corinth is the city that you get the term Corinthian girl from. That in the ancient world, to be a Corinthian girl was to be a whore. To be just ridiculously promiscuous. There are other words we won't use. Like, it was synonymous. To be a Corinthian was like, your sexual immorality is off the charts. This place is crazy. In that city, there's a church. And in that church, that church is known for being a church full of people drawn towards celebrity pastors. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. I just love celebrity pastors. I'm gonna attach myself to this. I'm gonna hitch my wagon over here with this guy. This guy is really charismatic. He's great. Have you heard him speak? Listen to his sermon. Celebrities. We're just drawn to celebrity in Corinth. And not only that, they'll divide over it. It's not enough to just say, like, I love this. It's like, no, you don't love this? Well, we can't be together. We'll divide over that. 
because you love that and I love this, so we'll just divide. There's no room for you. There's no seat at the table for you because we have a difference in our preference. They're doing things that even the outside culture looked at and said, that's insane and not okay. Read 1 Corinthians 5. There's a guy doing something with his mom that he should not be doing. And yet the church is letting him. The church is there saying, ah, okay. In their arrogance and their pride, they're letting this happen. In a way that's not just like, oh, like, but like, no, that's okay. Like, the church in Corinth is so corrupt, they're so just shameful in the way that they act, that the outside culture in a city known for its sexual immorality is saying, like, that's jacked up. That church is who Paul is writing to. That church, and that church is the same church that in spite of all that it's obsessed over in such ungodly ways, is fighting each other over who is more spiritually gifted. Well, I have the gift of tongues. Well, I have the gift of prophecy. Well, I have the gift of this. And they're fighting about it. Like, what is this madness that you're so consumed with these revelatory gifts when there's this happening? What is this? And yet, Paul calls them family. He calls them family and says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The gospel does not mean that we suddenly all look perfect. But it's the thing as broken sinners that hey, we are beloved. And so we come together and yes, we're gonna confront sin in each other's lives, but only because of grace. Grace confronts our sin too. It says you don't deserve to be here, but you're here because I was obedient for you on a cross. I took your sin, your shame. And so we can call each other beloved. We can excel not just maintain, but we can advance because the gates of hell surely will not. Jesus promised it. I mean, let's go. Let's do things in excellence. Your labor is not in vain if it is in the Lord. So ask yourself, is your labor in the Lord or is it in the name of yourself? Labor in the Lord. We can be steadfast. We can be immovable. We can excel in the Lord's work because the gospel is steadfast, immovable. It is excellent. It is his excellence. It is his grace toward us that is not in vain. And so we can live a life that is not in vain. Now that grace comes to persons to make a people, a people centered around the gospel, gospel community. So live in gospel community. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that would transform us from just broken, isolated sinners living already under condemnation to free people, free, beloved children of you your sons and daughters, that you have done this by what our brother Jesus has done on the cross. His death is our salvation. His life is our resurrection, the hope of everlasting life that starts now to live and delight in you and with each other to hold this gospel central. So Father, would you help us to be a church that experiences deep and genuine community and goes so far beyond just an hour on Sunday where we gather and do these things that are very important but extends to every moment of our life and what you have called us to. So Spirit, would you convict us and make new relationships flourish and come about um, for your glory. Oh, we love you. God, I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.